welcome to episode 11 of the Gambots Podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and this is my co-host, Christian. Tonight we're going to be talking about The Good Place. We will be talking about season one of Broadchurch. Christian finished up watching The Haunting on Hill House. Christian also saw Hunter Killer. And then finally, we're going to give you some video game updates and then finish off with our Amazon review game. But first... Episode 5 of The Good Place was released last week, and I think we're about halfway through the season at this point, because if I remember right, they have shorter seasons. Uh, Does that sound right, Christian? Yeah, it's uh, 13 episodes each, but seasons 2 and 3, they did an hour-long premiere, so it's really 12. Okay. And then usually, do they do a longer finale as well, or am I making that up? I'm not actually sure. I think... The finales so far have all been 30 minutes, but I would have to double-check that. Okay. So it was just the, just the beginning ones that were an hour. I, I forget. I watched most of these streaming. Um, so they all blend together. Uh, so I believe – so we're, we're getting pretty far. And last time we talked, I think we had just seen episode one or two. So we haven't talked about it for a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, so what have you thought of the new the, the episode since we last talked? Well, I've been back and forth. So I do think overall it's still a great show. It's still one of my favorites. This season had been a little weird for me. I think mostly because they'd kept the the character separated. Like Michael and Janet weren't really a part of the team. And now that they've been back together for the past two episodes, I think it's been a lot better. I'm I'm with you. And I think the this season suffered a little bit from the beginning on a like the audience didn't really know the where this is going. Whereas season one, you have a solid idea of what's going on. It's she's in the good place and she doesn't think she's going to be there and she needs to become a better person. So you have a concept of what that season is. And then season two, I don't want to spoil the end of season one, so I won't say. But I think at the beginning of season two, you have a pretty clear concept of what's going on uh, for the season. When season three started, it was nothing like the first two. And I was a little unsure of where it was going until actually – uh, you know, episode four of this season where now I think I have a pretty clear idea of what they're doing, where they're trying to help their friends and family get into the good place. Yeah. I like this as a concept. I got to say my, maybe now my new favorite character in the series series, donkey Doug. <laughs> so this episode is called the ballad of donkey Doug. And when I saw that title up on Hulu, I about lost my mind. I was laughing so hard. Yeah, and I could, and again, I don't. I'm going to try and keep this spoiler free, but I could not believe who Donkey Dog actually was. And then I know I was screaming. Him and Pillboy are. Oh my god! I think this episode may have been one of my favorite of the series, just with the amount of Jason they had, and then Jason's friends. Yeah, when when they did that reveal, I could not believe. I couldn't believe my ears. I was so excited. Yeah, uh, it was. It's. I think by far this season has. Like, I I like the first episodes, but I think the seasons actually have ha- has been getting better, and I I really enjoyed episodes four and five. Yeah, I agree with that. And and the last episode two four was. Uh, it was pretty fantastic watching Chidi's meltdown. I really, really enjoyed that scenario. Watching him walk through the the grocery store without a shirt on and buying like $800 worth of peeps. Yeah. And it's funny because it's funny too, is Chidi's generally a character number one, who's 
seems like he's in charge to some extent, even though he can't make decisions. And you actually finally see him making decisions that are all just bad choices. Yeah. Uh, I also thought actually episode four did a really good job of explaining the different, uh, I guess, philosophies on like what being moral is by showing the different characters' actions, like Tahani and Jason going out and get, giving people money. And then Eleanor actually doing a good deed. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool concept to wrap that stuff in. Yeah, it was very concise. It was a good summary of kind of everything that they've covered through the past two seasons. I fuck. I love Donkey Dog and Pillboy's idea of um, <laughs> body spray slash uh, energy drink. I know. Actually, my favorite thing that I saw this episode was the name of the Jacksonville airport was the Macho Man Randy Savage Airport. <laughs> I hadn't even noticed that. <laughs> yeah, when they come out, I saw that and I was like, oh my god, that's hilarious. When when they're pitching that energy drink and Donkey Doug's talking about how nobody believes in him and how everyone told him it was a bad idea, including several doctors, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Man, it, it, it was a very good episode this week. So this week, I actually finished watching the first season of Broadchurch, and I know you had watched it before, Christian, and I gotta say, big fan of Broadchurch uh, after episode two on. I wasn't huge on the first episode and didn't grab me, but I'm glad I ended up persevering because I could not stop watching the show on Sunday. I, I think I watched like five episodes in a row. Oh yeah, man. It is absolutely one of my favorites. So Broadchurch is, for our listeners who don't know, is a story following the a, a new detective comes into town. His name's David Tennant, and he's r- trying to find the killer of a young teenage boy that has rocked the town of Broadchurch. And this is an English show, so it's uh, a little bit different because I, I think I think generally their shows tend to be a little bit of a higher quality and less tropey. So this is actually 10 episodes of them trying to figure out who the killer is. And like, there's a lot of long form shots in this. There are, you know, it's like a slower show, which turned me off at first, but I actually think that's one of its strong suits by the end, because you actually explore how a lot of the different characters are feeling and not just how their search for this killer, but also how this murder tears the town apart. And how, you know, people jump to conclusions, the media's role in high-profile murders, how they can spread disinformation, but at the same time also help investigations. Like, overall, I thought it was a really well-done show. Yeah, it really is something special. So the music for this show is all done by Olafur Arnolds, who is an Icelandic artist, and he does a spectacular job. The music is nothing showy. It's It doesn't really ever call attention to itself it's all just incidental music and it's all really really well done it really sets the mood for just kind of the this like you said the slowness of the show but i i use slowness not in a bad way it's it's slow in kind of all the best ways it really pulls you in and and takes you along for the ride yeah uh, and i also i think david Tennant is uh di hardy crushed it he's actually what kept me in the show when it was slow because i think he's a great actor and i really like what he does but everyone really does a great job in the show there wasn't anyone who i was watching who i thought that a person is not a very good actor like i thought everyone did a, a spectacular job and 
I gotta say, I, you know, in the beginning, you're trying to find out, figure out the murderer the whole way. I could not figure it out until towards the end when you find out a couple crucial pieces of information. And then I was like, oh, I can't believe it's that guy. But uh, definitely a surprise ending. Yeah, I was going to ask if you figured it out beforehand. I did not. Uh, around episode seven, I did. Seven or eight. <laughs> I'm not good on picking stuff up, I guess. I didn't figure it out until they... they did the thing with the shoe size. Oh. Which is in like the second to last episode. Oh, when they ask the ask him, yeah. They hide who the killer is, I think, really well, where he's in scenes, you meet him, it's not a completely out of nowhere choice. I mean, the motive pretty much is, but it's not like they pull in someone you had seen briefly in one episode. So I think they do a really good job on Hide, you know, ha- having you be able to figure it out with clues they sprinkle along. And I would, it's such a long rewatch, but I kind of want to rewatch it to see if I pick up anything in the earlier episodes now. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. I've, I've rewatched it probably four times now, the first two seasons at least. Uh, do you pick up anything? A little bit. Like the, the character is asking questions, and but they're innocent enough. It's just one of those where when you have the information already, it's like, ooh. Is it innocent or is it not? And it's yeah, it's it's tricky. They they did do a really really good job, especially between shifting blame between all these different characters that you're introduced to. Like each episode, they're interviewing and suspecting somebody new, and each one of them could be just as likely. And it's it's a really really good job. It's a slow burn, but I like it a lot. Yeah, my only complaint. This isn't really with the show. It's just like with the characters in the show or. People who just won't answer simple questions to help with the murder investigation. And it's just like the police clearly don't care about you stealing pheasants or whatever, you know, like they don't, they don't care about like some minor crime of this guy having weed or whatever. It's like, they're trying to solve a murder. Just tell the, help them out. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's, that's something that uh, David Tennant says, I think in the second season when they're, they're dealing with this other inquiry, when, uh, He's saying, you won't give us these details. Like, if if my child had been murdered, I would tell the truth. You know, I, I just would. It doesn't really matter what it would do to me personally. And I'm like, yeah, I, that's that's for sure accurate. Like, if, if you're trying to, to shade these tiny details of your life, all you're going to do is make yourself look guiltier. Yeah, and especially when it's like a lot of the people doing it are close to the, the kid who died, and it's just like, what are you still trying to hide? Like the police clearly don't care about that. And even if they do, they're minor enough crimes or they're not even really crimes. Like you're, it just, I mean, it would just baffles my mind that like, that's my, I guess my one complaint is it doesn't seem realistic for them to lie sometimes to the police. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But I'm, I'm excited for you to watch season two. It's, it's about half about the trial and half about, uh, David Tennant's previous case for, from before he moved to Broadchurch. That sounds that sounds exciting. Maybe as, this has pretty much become my Sunday show, so I'll probably end up watching half the season on Sunday. Yeah, season two is my favorite of the three. Wow, nice. How many? Do you know how many episodes it is? I'm pretty sure it's just another ten. I think each of them are ten. Cool. Looking forward to it. So something about Broadchurch that we haven't mentioned yet is that it got adapted to an American show and it and basically got remade at the same time that it was airing in England. Really? I didn't know that. 
Yeah, there's a show called Grace Point that is the exact same show, also starring David Tennant. Really? Yeah. It might be on Netflix. I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, there is definitely a show. I think it takes place in Washington State. And everybody is recast except David Tennant, who plays the same role. And yeah, it's it's just an American version. I kind of want to see that. Does David Tennant do an American accent? I believe so. I haven't actually watched it. It's it's not on Netflix, which is probably why I haven't watched it. Man, I'm interested in seeing that now. I'll have to look. I, I just signed up for Hulu today to get caught up on Good Place. So now I feel like there's a whole new world of, of TV shows open to me. So it, it might be on Hulu somewhere. I'll have to try and try and find it. Yeah. Hulu's good, man. I think I might like if I had to pick one, I think I might end up picking it over Netflix. Really? Yeah. I don't know. That's actually, I think I would. I I like TV more than movies. (laughs) Yeah, so do I. But the, uh, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine is on Hulu and there there was a couple other shows that it was like pushing at me and I was like, oh man, yeah, I I have wanted to watch these and they never came to Netflix. So, Uh, Dude, you haven't watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I've seen the first two seasons. I, I ended up buying them on the Play Store after NBC bought it and there was that whole big hubbub. And I, I found out it was a Michael Schur show who did Good Place and Parks and Rec and Office. And so I was like, I definitely need to give this a chance. And man, I loved it, but I just never got around to buying the third season. But now that I have Hulu, you better believe, yeah, that's going to be top of my list. Yeah, man. it's I, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is one of my favorite shows on TV right now. It's solid. So you finished The Haunting of Hill House this week. Uh, what did you think of it? It was so good i really i cannot say enough good stuff about it so what was one of the things you liked most about it so it's a really detailed show and it has kind of two faces that it presents simultaneously one is that of a ghost story and one is that of just this family kind of dealing with grief and trying to cope with loss and it interweaves those two themes kind of flawlessly and the the two really come together in the sixth episode which is called two storms and it is a piece of art like i've never seen so it takes place half in a funeral home in the present and half in the haunted house back 25 years ago and so there is a continuous shot from the start of the episode until the 23 minute mark There are no camera breaks. It is just one long shot that these guys had to get right in one try or it would all be scrapped. And it was, it was amazing. I've never seen anything like it. Well, that is crazy, especially for a TV show. Well, I guess it's, this is a TV show, but it's a Netflix TV show. It's, it is very ambitious and it gets doubly exciting and impressive when you count in the fact that during that continuous shot, you go back and forth between the two timelines really yeah so the director had basically said they built the entire set with episode six in mind the idea being that the two the the haunted house set and the funeral home set would be built basically as with just a wall dividing them and so one of the characters walks down a long hallway and goes through a door and boom he's in the the set from the past And then they kind of pan around and walk through another doorway and they're right back in the present. 
And so the camera just follows them through these doorways and from one set right into the other, and it's seamless. It's incredible. That's awesome because you normally don't see set design. I feel like a good set design is usually you don't notice it. Like, you know, it's one of those things where I like it looks right. But this one, it seems like it's so awesome. You're actually like, oh my gosh, how did they do this? Yeah, it's cool. And But what's what's extra exciting is it doesn't really call attention to itself. And this is true for a lot of the show. It's A lot of it is buried underneath some layers of subtlety, but I didn't really recognize that this was happening. Like the, the shot going through the door back into to Hill House from the funeral home was cool, but it was just one of those things that, oh man, you know, that was a neat little trick that they did. After I read this article that the director was talking about how they filmed this, I went back and watched it again and it, it really is a marvel. And there's, there's a scene where the father's standing there looking at the at, at his kids and they're fully grown and the, the camera kind of swings around and, and points at the father and then swings back around and all the kids are kids again. Like they're the child actors that portrayed them in the past and it swings back and points at the father and swings back again and they're all back to being adults. <laughs> the director was saying that like all the actors were hiding behind this one wall and anytime the camera moved, they all had to like, quick run and change position and, and run back out and, and sit back where they were supposed to be again. So it was, it was pretty neat to hear about how they did it. They had to build this basically custom elevator to lower the camera from one story down onto the other to follow the characters as they run down a staircase. It was, it's really impressive. Matt, did you, did he say in the interview how many takes this took? He didn't, but I, I can't even imagine. Like, that would be so nerve-wracking. It's, it's Someone else described it to me. It was basically you're putting on a play. You you just you have to get it right. <laughs> Everybody has to get everything right on one try. It's It just sounds <laughs> intimidating. <laughs> yeah, but it's – man, there's so much involved in that, too. Could you imagine how many, like, 15, 20-minute, like, shots they had and someone messes up and it's like, all right, we just wasted a quarter of an hour or whatever. Yeah, there like there's a couple long continuous shots like that, but I know the first one is it's 23 minutes. I stopped it because it zooms in on the one character as a kid, and then it, it like snaps to him being an adult. There's not a smooth transition, so yeah, it, it is at the 23 minute mark. And I can't even imagine these are shots that are just you know one or two characters. Like it seems like it's probably a large portion of the cast. Oh yeah, it's the whole cast, like almost the entire time. And they, like, they're moving around, they're going from room to room in the funeral home and up and down the hall, and then, like I said, jumping between the two set pieces, and then all the kids are running in and out, and it's, it's very ambitious. I was really impressed with it. So I, I mentioned about the show not calling attention to itself. One of the other things is my chief complaint, and now, to be fair, I have now watched this the whole way through twice. So my chief complaint... The first time I saw it was there aren't any ghosts, or there aren't many ghosts, rather. There's kind of four. There's the bent neck lady, there's the guy with the bowler hat, and there's like two others that are really kind of integral to the story, and there aren't any others. And they play important roles, but not like in-your-face, like always on screen roles that you would expect from a typical ghost story. They, they just kind of drift in and out as, as they're needed. But reading again online about the show and then going back and watching it again, I was wrong. There are ghosts literally everywhere. But the really? show doesn't 
yet the show doesn't call attention to them because the main characters can't see them. And so you go back and you watch it again. If you watch not the main characters, but like the backgrounds and the corners and the shadows and underneath things and the reflections of mirrors, there are ghosts everywhere. That's awesome. Like that's a really awesome trick that they pull where it's just like to the side where you're really not focusing much like I guess the main characters wouldn't be focusing, uh, you know, peripheral vision and stuff like that. Yeah, like there's a moment where two of the sisters are talking as kids and there's like two hands that are, are coming out from underneath a table that you just, unless you were really just kind of letting your eyes wander around the set or unless you knew they were there to look for them, you wouldn't see them. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's mega creepy. And I think it really adds to the the aura of just kind of uneasiness that the show gives you the whole way through because that's people have been asking me is it scary and i don't really know how to answer because it is it's creepy and there's in episode eight there's a jump scare to kind of end all jump scares it's (laughs) man it gets you good but on the whole it's not classically scary it just kind of puts you on edge it really makes you kind of uncomfortable the whole time and I think part of it is because of how much people are talking about how scary it is. And then when it isn't that immediately, you're constantly like waiting. So it seems like they do some cool stuff with ghosts, but do they do any cool things with like characters or their development? Oh yeah, absolutely. So the father is probably the, the most interesting character in the story and he's my personal favorite. Um, but the, the siblings and there are five of them each have a representation and they represent one of the stages of grief and they go in order of their birth. The oldest is Steven and he, he represents denial because he never really saw anything in the haunted house when he was a kid. And so he doesn't believe in it. His sister Shirley is the second and she's anger and she really does a pretty good job of being that the whole way through the show. I'm not a real big fan of hers. And then the the middle sister, Theo, is bargaining. She has an ability where she can touch things and kind of sense their past and sometimes sense their future. And so she uses that to kind of put herself and, and the people in her life onto a direction that would be better. And then Luke is an addict, and so his life is kind of terrible. He's in and out of rehab, and he's shooting up heroin and all these other things. He's homeless he's always stealing from his family and his friends. And so he's depression for sure. And then Nell is the youngest and she's the one who had the most experiences of of the hauntings in the house. And she represents acceptance because she's kind of the first one to get to a point where it's like, man, it is what it is. And I'm going to have to deal with it. Cool. It's a, it's a neat, subtle way to put that into a show. Yeah, it was really, really well crafted. Like I said, I really can't, recommend this show enough i can't say enough about it and people seem to be agreeing the the reactions online are fairly positive there's a little bit of confusion at the end and i I don't want to spoil anything but i thought the end was fairly clean cut it's it's a weird show (laughs) in points and it's the ending especially but there's some reveals in the end that really just blew me away and i was really really happy with it so how would you stack this against other tv shows you've watched this year absolutely if not at the top very near the top 
Like BoJack Horseman season five. I mean, it's it's real hard to compare a, a nonsensical animated show about an out of work horse actor, but to to something like this. But it's it also has a, a depth that you wouldn't expect from it, and so they they're more similar than they would seem at first blush. But I think this is probably better. It's definitely more approachable. And the only other shows I've really been invested in this year have been Good Place and Doctor Who, and they both just started. So we'll have to wait to see how they size up. But this is a really fantastic show, especially for this month. I know there's only a couple of days left before Halloween, but if you can get it in beforehand, I would definitely do it. So is this, uh, just to finish off on this, is season one, does it end in its clear cut, or do you think there's going to be a season two of it? I think it's tied up very nicely. It doesn't end the way I would have hoped that it would, but it's still fairly satisfying, which is one of the complaints some people had is, is that it seemed too, too much of a happy ending, but I, I liked it. But the director has said that there is not going to be a season two, at least not for this family, the, the Crane family. He said that they've been through enough. So it seems like he might be open to making more stories, but and maybe even in this same kind of world but it seems like the the siblings are are done for now so it seems like if they do do more than one season it'll be something like um fargo or american horror story where they're in the same vein but maybe entirely different probably entirely different casts and not really following the same stories yeah it definitely something like that I i would liken it to like the conjuring series where we're we're getting stories from the same world but none of the stories really like and, and the sto- i could even see the stories interweaving a little bit but the this thread the idea that hill house is haunted this is done all right so this week you also saw hunter killer a new movie that's starring gerard butler gary oldman common and linda cardellini uh what did you think of it it was fun I, it looked dumb. I, I admittedly went into it because I thought it was going to be one of those movies that was so bad it was like entertaining, <laughs> something like uh, Gods of Egypt. But it was uh, it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I was pleasantly surprised. Is this a comedy? Is it a what, what type of movie is this? It's it's like a military drama essentially. Uh, what happens is there are two submarines that are kind of playing cat and mouse with each other at the beginning and they both explode and nobody's really sure why one of them's Russian, one of them's American. And so this second sub captain by Gerard Butler is sent to investigate what happened. And then there's another Russian sub and they both think that the opposing country has like started an act of aggression. And then there's a coup in Russia by the, like the defense minister is holding the prison, the president hostage and trying to start a war with the United States kind of on his own. And so the whole movie then is about trying to defuse this situation. So Gary Oldman is the secretary of defense and common and Linda Cardellini both work for the government. And so they're back in Washington kind of monitoring and trying to defuse the situation. And Gerard Butler then is on the submarine which is then going into russian waters to try and rescue the russian prime minister and stop the coup before it can escalate man that's so who so i guess 
who's the main antagonist in it? Is the is it the other sub or is it Gary Oldman? The the main antagonist is the Russian war minister who is legitimately only on screen for like ten minutes. It's wild. It, yeah, so he's just on screen to do the coup, and then that that's it. Basically, yeah, he like he. He takes the prime minister hostage or the Russian president or whatever title he has. He takes the guy hostage, basically tells him his evil plan, and then sends the soldiers out to do it. And that's really all the more you see of him. There's a couple of shots of him like in the base giving orders, but there's never like a direct confrontation with him. So it seemed like this movie is not critically well-received, but the audience uh, seems to love it. And I'm guessing you're more on the audience uh, side of liking this. Yeah, I definitely am. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is an 86%, and that's probably fair. <laughs> like I said, it wasn't great. It, there were definitely moments of it that were like, eh, all right. But on the whole, it was it was a very fun movie. It was entertaining. It was more than I expected it to be. So an 86, I would definitely say, is fair. The critic score is 36, and that's way, way too low. Yeah, and it seems like in the box office it's doing relatively well. Yeah, so it made a little over six and a half million this weekend, which is pretty solid. It's number five nationwide. Halloween's still number one, and that's I think is going to be for a couple of weeks yet. Surprisingly, Star is Born and Venom are still numbers two and three, which they've been out for several weeks now. Then Goosebumps at four. So this is doing pretty well. It's five is not amazing for its opening weekend but for what this movie is i think five is pretty good yeah i mean i've i haven't seen a preview for this i haven't even heard of this movie till you till you brought it up uh most surprising thing for me is commons in this it seems like he's been in a lot of stuff lately like if i'm remembering right he was in littlefoot oh yeah so our theater currently has three movies with common in it which is too many but he's in this he's in smallfoot and he's in another movie called the hate you give which came out a few weeks ago. Man, it's a very common October. I know, it's great, because he's a scary dude. So would you recommend people check this out? Oh, yeah, for sure. And it seems like the the number of people who've been coming, at least in, at our theater, kind of increased as the weekend went on. So I hope word of mouth is spreading and, and this gets a little more money for for what it is. Like I said, it's it's fun. It's very entertaining. So in video game news, first, some Resident Evil games have been announced for the Switch in 2019. Uh, Number one is the Resident Evil Remake and Resident Evil Zero. I have not played either of those very much. I know they're generally well regarded. Uh, But the one I'm more interested in is Resident Evil 4 is being ported to the Switch as well, which is generally regarded by some as being one of the best video games ever. Um, Have you ever had a chance to play any of the Resident Evils, Christian? I have not actually played any of them, but I do remember when Resident Evil 4 was like out originally, and I remember people losing their minds over it. They loved it. Yeah, so Resident Evil 4, for background for any of our listeners, was originally supposed to be a GameCube exclusive. It ended up coming to PlayStation 2, which is where I first played it with additional content, so you could get a suit of armor for the one character you have to do a lot of... um, chauffeuring quest for so it made her harder to to grab 
so the pre- so it's actually one of the first Resident Evils to change how the Resident Evil formula was. So instead of being uh, fixed camera and you move your character on the screen, this was a behind the shoulder view where it was kind of like a third person shooter, except you can't aim and run at the same time. You have to plan yourself and aim. But this was one of the first games where where you shot the enemies mattered. Like if you shot them in the leg, they would stumble and fall or you would get headshots. But then later on in the game, headshots weren't that good because, you know, they have these things called plagas in them and monsters would pop out of their head. So it really mattered where you shot them or they'd be carrying weapons and you could shoot, you know, axes and stuff out of their hand. It was revolutionary at the time. It came out in 2005. And I mean, that's rightfully so. I think a lot of people were amazed by it. Um, I think it's a little bit slow, but I, I've beaten it on the PlayStation 2. I think it's a pretty awesome game, and I'm excited that people will get a chance to experience it in 2019. One other thing of note that I think what made it so popular was this, along with God of War, essentially popularized real-time events and essentially mainstream AAA games where you would be watching a cutscene and all of a sudden you had a quick time event come up where you had to hit A and B or R2 or whatever. And if you didn't, you could die. And then you would have to replay the cutscene again. I'm actually not a huge fan of them. And they're used in God of War to a bit different where you use them in boss battles and stuff. But those were also a big thing that came about that people seemed to love because if you messed up, you saw, you know, gory death scenes for Leon. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty neat. Like I, I know there are so many games out there now that require you to have quick reflexes when you're not expecting them. And, and God knows we've talked enough about kingdom hearts on here, but kingdom hearts two has the reaction commands, which sounds like it's real similar to that. You'd be in the middle of a boss fight and you have to quick hit triangle to kind of trigger a, a mini cutscene attack. Yeah. And it, I mean, speaking of boss fights, I think resident evil four has some of the best boss fights I've ever played in like a third person shooter style game. Um, there's just some creepy bosses and, you know, you have environmental awareness with them. They're, they're fun. Um, the only thing is if you do not like games where you need to worry about ammo conservation, resident evil four might not be your game. It is heavy on that. And I always felt like I did not have enough ammo. <laughs> yeah. I, this is something I go back and forth on between like fun and realism. The idea that like, Resource management is important, but if I'm playing a game just to like kill zombies and move on, sometimes it, it feels like it's just getting in the way. But I also recognize that realism is important, and so I, I like when my games are more realistic. I just ammo conservation falls like right in the dead center where I'm like, yeah, this is important, and it's definitely an important part of gameplay to be able to manage your resources efficiently. But at the same time, I'm like, just give me my bullets. Oh, Christian, if you're a fan of hyper-realism in games, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 came out this week, and from most of the reviews I've heard, it's supposed to be one of the most realistic games ever. Oh, man. I don't think I'll enjoy Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> yeah, so they apparently put so much into this game that you, you get a horse. They put some formula or some code into the game where you can literally watch your horse's testicles shrink if you go into the mountains. Like that's their attention to detail in this game. That's that's too much. That's way too much. 
Yeah, like that was a selling point. And, you know, generally right now, the game's sitting at a 97 on Metacritic, but it has a user score of 76, which is surprising for a Rockstar game. And so if our if our listeners don't know, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 is created by Rockstar. They're the same guys who created the Grand Theft Auto series. Their last game, Grand Theft Auto V, had a billion dollars in revenue within the first month of being released. Huge game. This was a highly anticipated game, so I was expecting to see more positive reviews all around, but actually there's been, I won't say controversy. There's been a mini amount of grumbling from certain, certain demographics online and some YouTube personalities about this game being too realistic where it actually maybe decreases the fun a little bit. So for example, looting dead bodies, uh, when you do the animation to loot them, it looks really cool. Like you go through their jacket and stuff, but if you just, apparently if you had just killed like, you know, five or six people, you do that to everyone and it just adds time to the game that some people just don't actually want to deal with. They just want to pick up everything and move on. They don't want to spend, you know, two or three minutes looting everyone. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's rough. I know I, there's a, a, a comic artist that I follow on Twitter. And I, I've been a big fan of his comics for a long time. And he, he posted kind of like a live review of him playing the beginning and he did not care for it at all. Yeah, and see, that's really surprising from a Red Dead game. Now, it has a 76 user score on Metacritic. There's been a lot of complaints on here where it's trolls or something where you put zeros, and the game clearly doesn't deserve that. But you, I, I, when I went through, I was seeing a lot of some sixes, some sevens, some eights, where people were complaining about that. And the other thing is the movement in this is where it's uh, you, you have momentum in the game so you can't just stop right away it's not like you control very it's not snappy controls um so you actually have weight to your movement you have to get up to speed and stuff like that so i think those you know are probably legitimate complaints if some people don't like it which i'm just surprised that you know this was probably the i think the most highly anticipated game of the year i'm sure it's still going to sell millions of copies i was just surprised to see so much grumblings about it so quickly so one of the things I've heard negative about this from a couple people, in, including the review that I'd mentioned before, was that the controls are sluggish. Now, you talking about having to control your momentum, are you saying that the sluggishness is like a built-in part of the game? Yeah, so it's – and granted, I haven't played this, so I'll take it with a grain of salt. But from what I understand and from my playing of other games that use similar mechanics – um, it takes you momentum to get moving. So it's not like you're one speed from the get go. It's you, you know, you build up a little bit of speed and then you don't stop right away when you need to turn. It's like your character slows down. It's like forced momentum. And then sometimes you feel like you're moving too slow in towns because you have to like walk things like that. And I, I'm trying to think of games that have it. I think the Witcher three might've had it a little bit where you sometimes carry further than you want. And because these aren't really, platforming games i don't think it matters as much but i think it probably just gets it it wears on people who aren't used to games like that um but i'm sure once you play it enough you just get used to how the characters move okay yeah uh, when when you were talking in in the beginning about the (laughs) the incredible attention to detail i was wondering if the sluggishness was a a bug and not a feature (laughs) The, the idea that maybe they devoted so many resources to computing these tiny, tiny things in the minutia of the game that maybe the controls were suffering, but having your controls difficult to navigate on purpose is a bold choice. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is definitely a built-in feature. I just think, I guess it's a design choice. Like it, it does go into their being realistic. Like, you know, like when you normally move, you have momentum to your weight. I just don't know if necessarily it's one of those that I think it's what you want in a game, right? Like, do you want a game that controls great? Like I think Horizon Zero Dawn controls perfectly and it doesn't have momentum controls, but everything feels good. Whereas some people, maybe they really want, you know, that feeling of this is how this person's actually going to move in the real world. Um, I don't want to be able to like cancel that action immediately. Like he needs to be able to finish taking a step before he can roll. He can't be like mid air and then roll to the right without being able to plant his foot. I just think it's kind of comes down to who, what you're expecting out of the game is my guess. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm, I'm used to like half of this. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to the idea of needing to get up to speed but I'm also used to the idea of being to stop, being able to stop immediately. Yeah. I know I've played games like this and I'm, it's just on the back of my head, what games control like this. I'm sure you have to, I, I think Grand Theft Auto five might control like this, where, you know, you hit right and it doesn't go immediately. It's like he takes a half step and then has to, you know, juke right or left. Um, but I, I saw some complaints about that as well, but overall it seems like it's a, it's a pretty impressive game for their level of detail and immersion, which is uh, it kind of makes me want to check that out alone. Yeah. And Im- immersion is awesome. Like it's, it's definitely a step towards, I-, I feel like we're in like a middle ground now where we have these open world games that are amazing, but eventually we're going to step towards something more where it, like m- more virtual reality kind of stuff. <laughs> open world games give me anxiety sometimes because I think like, I'm not good at focusing in real life. I'd, I'm not going to be good at focusing in a video game that emulates real life. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I'm just gonna, like, that was my problem with Skyrim. And I, I didn't play Skyrim for a long time, but I definitely did not try to stick to the story at all. It was just like, hey, I wonder what's at the top of that mountain. I went and climbed it. Like, there was no motivation for me at all. Yeah, I'm the opposite on that i'm rough i find open world games rough because i have to do everything and i always focus on side quests first so it's like you'll be whatever 30 hours in and i still haven't done like one of the main quests and they're just and then i get like anxious about it or you get fatigued that it's like called open world fatigue where you just play too many open world games and you get tired of them and so finally Sony finally revealed the full list of games on their PlayStation Classic. And if you don't know what PlayStation Classic is, it's essentially a ripoff of the NES Classic, where it's a mini console that has games from the PlayStation 1 era. And they have 20 games on it. The games include Battle Arena, Toshinden, Cool Borders 2, Destructive Derby, Final Fantasy 7, Grand Theft Auto, Intelligent Cube, Jumping Flash, Metal Gear Solid, Mr. Driller, Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey, Rayman, Resident Evil Director's Cut, Revelations, Persona, Ridge Racer Type 4, Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, Siphon Filter, Tekken 3, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, Twisted Metal, and Wild Arms. Christian, do you have any interest in the PlayStation Classic? Uh, A little bit. (laughs) Uh, I've played Final Fantasy VII, as has everyone in the world. And I also have played Cool Borders 2, which is a little more of a deep cut. I'm a big fan of Cool Borders too. Actually, I sunk a lot of time into that as a little kid. 
Yeah, you know, of this game list, I'm not that impressed with it, and I get why Sony can't choose some of them. Like, you'd think they're, they would have tried harder to get a Crash Bandicoot or a Spyro or something, but those guys just got re-releases. Uh, I was actually a Cool Borders 3 fan over 2, so... <laughs> but, yeah, that I mean, Cool Borders is a really good snowboarding game. It came out, you know, in the Tony Hawk era when extreme sports were just coming to video games, and people loved them. Uh, Tekken 3 was one of my fighting, favorite fighting games of all time. I always wanted to play the Wild Arm series and never got a chance, but overall, like for a hundred bucks, like you're essentially paying five dollars per game on these. I have a PlayStation Vita. I'm sure I can get cheaper versions of these, or I can just buy, you know, the five or six games I actually would like to play for less than a hundred dollars. And the peripheral itself doesn't really interest me. Um, yeah, that's really fair. For for a hundred dollars, this is yeah, it's a bit of an ask, especially for the games that they included. Like you, you brought up Crash and Spyro, and those were definitely the first two that came to mind for me as well. But like you said, they they both just got HD re-releases, so I, I would have been surprised to have seen the originals on here. Tony Hawk is another one that I I would have hoped that at least the original, because I think by Tony Hawk two we were on PlayStation two, if I'm remembering correctly, but. The original Tony Hawk, man, I, I loved that game. I was kind of surprised to not see it on this list. Yeah, and you know, it's it's just like a – I think it's a, honestly a licensing thing. Like Tony Hawk 1 has an insane playlist. I was actually looking at it the other uh, – last week um, randomly because I was listening to a song. I was like, oh, it was on Tony Hawk. And, you know, I read this article that made a good point that Tony Hawk very likely could have influenced an entire generation of kids' music taste because it hit a bunch of like late grade elementary school, middle school students. And it's just like ska and punk, pop punk rock and stuff. And it totally influenced my taste. Like I love the music in Tony Hawk. And then I was a huge into punk when I was in like elementary school and stuff. And I never thought about it, but definitely had an influence on my taste in music. Like Tony Hawk was so influential uh, for more than just the game. And it would have been awesome to see it on here. Oh yeah, for sure. The 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 music was a, a huge factor. Like there were some some great bands in there. Lagwagon, uh, Goldfinger, Alien Ant Farm. I think uh, Public Enemy had a song on one of them. And it's it's another one where I, I've played all three of them, and so I I can't really remember which ones went to which. But there, all, all three of them had great great music attached to them. All right, and this week we will be playing the Amazon review game. So to review of the rules, I am going to read a five-star review from Amazon. Christian's going to get two questions. I will, if he needs it, I'll read another one. He'll get two more questions, and then he gets a final review, and I'll have to guess. And this one is not your first clue, Christian. I just thought it was kind of funny. The title is My Amy Loves, in all caps, this movie. The review is Amy Loves This Movie, and That Was Good Enough For Me. <laughs> glowing review okay so here's your first review are you ready all set this movie has always been my favorite childhood halloween movie this movie has darkness to it making it scary but not in uh, the way movies are nowadays the movie has everything you want in a halloween movie it has adventure it's dark and it has a nice but also sad to me, ending. This is a must-have movie in your collection. I watch it every year in October, and it always puts a smile on my face. 
I highly recommend this movie for everyone who likes Halloween or scary movies. Hmm. Is this an animated movie? No. Ooh. Is this a found footage movie? No. Oh, then I'm definitely going to need another review. All right. This is one of my absolute favorite Halloween movies. Yes, it's kind of cheesy, but it has become my traditional holiday movie that is just simple and fun to watch. Some people may think that the subject matter is a little dark for kids uh, with the characters who consume the youth of children. And if you think about it, that's just a plot about it's just a plot point. I would agree. But Disney does a good job with the rest of the story development and it didn't become an issue for us. If you're looking for a fun Halloween movie to watch as a family and can sit back and enjoy it for the campy fun that it is intended, then you will love the movie. Is this movie about witches? Yes. Is it Hocus Pocus? It is Hocus Pocus. Nice. I want to get a Halloween one here since Halloween's coming up. Good deal. It's hard to find one. Like everyone who talks about it, like goes really into detail, except that guy who Amy loves it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. There that's were good enough for me. <laughs> you know, Christian, there are 478 five star pages of five star reviews for this. 478 movie. pages, my God. Yes, it had 5,000 some reviews. All right, guys. All right, so what are you going to be checking out this week, Christian? Well, I'd first like to do a shout out to a podcast that I I listen to, and it's one of my absolute favorites called Lore, L-O-R-E. They had their 100th episode just today. It's all just about folklore and scary stories and and the like. But they also have a TV show on Amazon that's their second season came out at the beginning of the month, and I've just been putting it off and putting it off. So I definitely think I'm going to try and watch that this week just in time for Halloween. Uh, also, Bohemian Rhapsody comes out this week, the, the story of Freddie Mercury and Queen, the, the biopic, and that looks like it's going to be pretty excellent. I'm pretty excited for that, so I'm, I'm sure I'll get into that this week as well. Uh, this week, I'm going to continue playing some games. I picked up Divinity Original Sin 2 last week and Spider-Man. I played about four hours of Divinity so far. It's really fun. Definitely different for a game that I normally play. It's story driven very D like it's it's pretty awesome so far uh i have played about an hour to a spider-man also pretty awesome so someday in the next month or so i will probably have a review on spider-man divinity original sin 2 is like hundreds of hours to platinum the game so that's a, a more of a long-term goal i also picked up follow-up children played a little bit of that it's pretty fun definitely more of a mobile game but i got it on uh, playstation 4 for free um, other than that, that's about all I'm checking out. So, sounds good. All right, guys, thanks for checking out our episode. If you want to follow us, we're at Gambots Network on Twitter. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thank you.